A dad was with his two sons and a younger daughter. They were on a group outing to an amusement park. Maybe some of you have had this experience. The daughter was a little young. He knew his two boys were going to want to ride some of the bigger rides. And so he uh, decided he'd send them off with some of their friends. And then he'd take his daughter and do some of the, some of the kids' rides that were her size. Before the boys left, though, he went to his older son. And he gave him $100. And he said, when you take this, I want you to have a, a great time with, uh, with your friends, with your family today, and um, uh, I just ask that you give your brother $10, to $10, a little more than that, so that he can get some lunch when it, uh, when it comes time today. So the boys went off, thanks dad, headed out into the park. Late afternoon, the group had a check-in, and so they were coming back to check in with, you know, everybody that was there, just see how everybody was doing, make sure everybody was having a good time, and the uh, older son came back, and he had a stuffed animal under one arm, and he was dribbling a basketball with his other hand, and, and he and the friend, they all had smiles on their faces. You could tell they were having a, they weren't having a great time. And the dad immediately noticed that his younger son was about 20 paces behind him. It was just dragging. And uh, so as they came up, he went up to his younger son. He's like, are you having a good time? You look like you need a nap. He's like, oh, yeah, it was fun, but I'm just, I, I didn't get any lunch. I'm starving. And, uh, and the dad said, well, did you... You know, did, your brother didn't give you money? No. Well, did you ask? Well, yeah, I asked, but he said first that, uh, that it was his money um, and that he might give me some later. And then, and then he said that uh, he was out of money and so there wasn't any more. And then he told me if I would just be more responsible, dad would have given me some money too. And then the dad turned to the older son and he said, is this true? Yes. Whose money was it? Well, you gave it to me. Yeah, but who gave you the money? You did. Well, and what did I say when I gave you the money? Well, you said to have a good time. And? And you said to make sure my little brother had something to eat. You said to make sure your brother had something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, take my lips this day and speak through them. Lord, take our minds, those of us gathered in person, those online, take, take our minds and think through them and take our hearts. Take our hearts, God, and just set them on fire with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A, a number of years ago, PBS had a kind of a reality show on called Frontier House. Did anybody see Frontier House on, uh, on PBS? Not a, not a whole lot of people, I think, saw it. The concept was three families uh, were drawn from around the country, 13 people in those families, and they were invited to live on, essentially on the prairie, in the frontier. And uh, uh, no, you know, no, no tractors, no modern implements, no appliances, no convenience or grocery stores. Essentially, they were given wagons with about what, that, what a family in that time would have come to the frontier with, and they had to build a house and then fend for themselves on the prairie. Which leads to this great question, how many of you could have fended for yourself on the prairie? Show of hands, anybody think you could fend for your, there aren't a lot of hands going up out there. So, 
all three families actually made it. The, it was a five-month span. They all made it, and the whole story was documented, and then they did a docu-series about their experiences and, and what happened out there. But there's a bit of a catch in, in about how they made it, which is that they were there from June through, the, uh, uh, through October. So their five months were June through October. So they did not have to make it through a winter on the, on the frontier. Uh, I remember one family member in an interview, and I don't remember if it was in the series or if it was something I was reading after, but one of the family members said it was, it was a fantastic experience. They would not trade it for the world, but it was hard, like really hard. And she said, there is no way our family would have made it through the winter. She thought the other two families might have made it. She's like, our fa- there, no way, we would not have survived the winter. So I, I asked a related question last week about who had green thumbs, but, but this week I asked this question again because I think it gets, gets kind of at the heart of understanding life in the past, uh, life before industrialization that, uh, uh, that makes us really think about it. How many of you think that you could have survived at least one winter on the American frontier fending for yourself? That would be nobody in this room. Uh, if you find yourself there, first service had three or four people. We can identify them for you. You'll want to like put your house next to theirs because they thought that they that they could make it, right? Uh, my second question here is, how many think you would have been doomed? And I'm going to guess most hands will go up to doomed, right? So, so take that thought and now back it up two thousand years, right, to biblical times. We're talking this month at Clay Church about trees and, and gardens in the Bible. And, and the concept of gardens has a different meaning when we put ourselves back in biblical times. Right? I, I think the, old, the words of the Old Testament in particular can take on deeper meaning when we begin to realize just how dependent families and communities were on their gardens. Right? Gardens weren't about flower, pretty flowers and and fresh produce when you could get it in the summer because you couldn't go to the grocery store. Gardens were about life and death. Gardens were about community survival. So, so what does it mean if we take that and think about and think about the Bible as we read it today? If we take that context, perhaps we can find a little bit more in these stories and these concepts and these ideas of the, of the Old Testament. For example, we're going to talk about the tithe a little bit today, which I know can sometimes be sort of a, an uncomfortable subject in the church, but I don't know that it needs to be. And I, I think one of the reasons it's an uncomfortable subject is because what do you think of when you think of tithe? When somebody says tithe in the church, our minds immediately go or often will go to this sense of obligation that we have or that we sense or that we think the Bible says to give 10% of what we earn to the church. And by the way, I'm not going to unglue that as we talk today, but I wonder with a deeper understanding of biblical times if, if we might discover that there's much more in, in this concept of the tithe. Uh, just start off to give you an idea tackled this in seminary. We were in a seminary class, and I don't remember now if it was Bible or theology, but um, I'm guessing it was Old Testament. And we were talking about the tithe and the passages in the Bible. We're going to look at some of them today that, that talk about the tithe. And uh, one, of, 
one of the students in our class, kind of the smart aleck guy. Um, any of you know the smart aleck guy from your past classes? Yeah, any of you were the smart aleck guy in your past class? You don't have to put your hand up for that one if you don't want to. Um, the smart aleck guy, he, he looked at the professor and, and he goes, okay, I just have a question. I want to understand this. So the Bible says that you're supposed to give 10% of the harvest of your fields um, and, uh, and you're supposed to give 10% essentially of the of the meat of, of, your, uh, of your livestock, is that right? Or 10% of your livestock to the temple. And the professor was like, yeah, you, you understand that correctly. And, uh, and then, smart aleck alert, he goes, okay, so I don't have any fields, I'm not a farmer, and I don't have any livestock, so I don't have to give everything, right? And, uh, and this is what I really remember about this moment. The professor looked right at him and goes, <laughs> and goes not so fast, smart guy. And just that tone of voice, like I'd never heard a professor address a student quite that way before. And then, then she said, ultimately tithing is not about percentages or money. Tithing is about something much more important. So let's unpack. Let's unpack tithing and, and start here. Right? I think it's important to understand that tithing isn't just a rule. Tithing isn't just an obligation or a demand of, of God. When we take a deep look at what tithing meant in Old Testament times when it was first introduced, tithing was about an identity as God's people. Yeah, there were some guidelines around tithing, but at its heart, at its heart, tithing wasn't about an obligation. At its heart, tithing was about identity as God's people. Listen to God's word. This is in um, Deuteronomy 24. Moses is speaking to the people, and he says, 2419, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. It's like, wait a minute, what does is, what is being slaves in Egypt have to do with leaving behind produce in your, in your vines or on your trees? Like, what, how are those related? Well, the people would have known. It's like God is saying to them, remember, you were slaves in Egypt once. You know what it is like to barely have enough while others prosper off of your labor and your work. You know what it is like to struggle every day just to get bread onto your table for you and for your children. You know what it is like to be taken advantage of as a foreigner or an outsider. And God's saying, we have left that behind and now you are being invited to imagine yourself as a new community, as the people of God. You're being invited to live into a new reality. 
And in this reality, nobody has to go without. There can be enough for everybody. Everybody can be cared for in this reality. Tithing, it becomes part of this new identity. This is it. Tithing becomes at the it becomes the heart of this new community. God tells them tithing is going to distinguish you from the other empires around where some are rich and some are living in squalor. Tithing is going to is going to distinguish you from Egypt where you worked to your own deaths while others lived in comfort from your labor. Tithing the very practice of giving 10% of what one earns, the very process of giving the first fruits of, of one's labor, right, will be an identity that reminds the people who they are. Right? First, maybe foremost, tithing as a, as a part of their identity, the practice of tithing will remind God's people, does remind God's people, right, that everything belongs to God, all of it. Right, giving both the first fruits of the harvest and the 10%, it, it just reminds people that, that this didn't belong to me anyway. It belongs to God. If I give it, now God can, can use it for the, for the whole community. We aren't owners of the earth. We act like we are sometimes. We aren't owners of the earth. We're stewards, caretakers. In Deuteronomy 8.18, Moses tells the people, it says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. We don't just have wealth because we're great. We have wealth because God blessed us with the ability to produce wealth. In Leviticus 27.30, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's interesting, this passage, which again emphasizes that everything belongs to the Lord. We often think of a tithe as 10%, but this passage actually will say, if you can't give 10% of what's in your fields or your crops and, and 10% of your livestock for some reason, maybe you're, maybe you're breeding livestock and you can't give 10% this year of your livestock, then you're to give a gift um, in, a, uh, in, in place of that of 10% plus another 5% of that. It's actually calling for a gift of 12% um, in Leviticus. But all that is secondary to the fact that tithing reminds us who we are, stewards of God's creation. Right? How many of you have heard a child say, it's mine, and it just sort of made you, you know, how many of you said yourself, it's mine? Right? The Bible invites us, tithing reminds us to instead say, it all belongs to God. To just get rid of the words, it's mine. It all belongs to God. And then give thanks for the blessing that we get to be stewards of, of, those, of those good gifts. Tithing is a practice of our identity. It also helps us to focus on what matters the most. Tithing focuses us on what matters. 
It's an invitation to look at our priorities. I think I've shared stories before. Some of you have probably read some of these stories. How Study after study shows that most people who win the lottery are less happy after they've won the lottery uh, than they are before they won the lottery. And, right, it seems backwards to us because well, we, we work for, you know, for financial peace and we think, well, if we, if we just win the lottery, if we'd have that kind of money, we'd be at peace. But what happens instead when people win the lotteries, all of their focus goes to how to protect the money and how to distribute the money fairly among all the family members who, who want a piece of it. And, um, and, and it just becomes about the money instead of the things that matter most in our lives. God and God's beloved community and, and family. In Deuteronomy 14.23, Moses is helping the people understand the tithe and its purpose. And he gives this instruction, and it's really interesting. It says, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Notice something here about the tithe. This part of the instruction of the tithe, it actually says you can partake in the tithe yourself. It's not just about everybody else. You can, you can eat of the, of the blessings that you're, you're sharing, the food that you're sharing as well, but not alone. It isn't just for you. It's for all of you to bring it together. Why? So that you can gather together and worship the Lord. Remember what is most important. Remember who is the source of all of these blessings? Right, so the tithe was a practice of bringing all of the gifts together where the practices of the community then would focus on what was most important. Revering God, loving God would be another way to say it. Gathering with the community and families gathered together. And a third piece of this identity of God's people that comes from tithing, it may be the most important of all, right? Because tithing identifies God's people as a different kind of community than the world around them, right? Tithing equips a community that at its very heart cares for one another and for those outside of the circles of inclusion in our world. Right? Tithing equips God's people to establish community where everybody, absolutely everybody, is of sacred worth. Where it's possible for everybody to have enough. Everybody to be supported. As we heard earlier in Scripture, in the harvesting season, those with, those with land were to leave the extra grain behind, and those with trees were to leave the extra olives, those with grapes were to leave the extra grapes for, for people around them. And then tithing took that a step further. These were the instructions given in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. Moses continues to give these instructions, and he says this, at the end of every three years, Bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. 
so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see, the tithe in this sense every three years, was to be brought together for the whole community and stored so that, the, so that the caregivers, the Levites, the priests, those who cared for others, could be taken care of. And then in turn, they could use those stores to care for the, the community, particularly those who couldn't care for themselves, the, the foreigners, the widows, the, the orphans in their community, the sick. Right at the heart of it all, the the tithe contributed to the identity of God's people as a community that cared for everyone. So it's really easy to get caught up in defining the numbers of the tithe. People even today, they'll they'll ask, like, tell me exactly how I should tithe again. Like, does it mean 10% of my income before taxes or 10% of my income after taxes? Or, or the last question, you know, so, so if I'm giving to another place, do I then need to give 10% to the church as well? Like, how does, how does that work? And the thing about these questions, they're not bad questions. The thing about these questions is they're all about legalities and, and money, they're all questions with this idea of, can you just define just exactly how much? Like, I don't want to give too much. I don't want to give, like, can you just give me a marker of how much to give? And across the centuries, people have asked this. It's like, it's like minimizing what God can do and, and trying just to, just to make it work for us. And the, the Bible has some words for, for us when we ask those questions and, and we get our hearts tied up in, in doing the minimum or we get our hearts tied up in and just meeting the marker. We find this first in the prophet Malachi. In, uh, in Malachi, uh, he speaks to this community of the people of God, and at, at this time, we can tell from his words that the, the people are giving their leftovers to God, if that. The people have become unfaithful. They've stopped caring about their community. They're just looking out for themselves. And Malachi speaks God's word, and he says, I, the Lord, do not change in Malachi 3, verse 6. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. It's a statement of God's faithfulness to us. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to spare. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God says to this people who've started just looking out for themselves, if you want to return to me, 
bring your tithes and offerings and care about each other again and care about your community again. And then just test me in this. Share your blessings with each other and share them with the community and watch, watch what I can do. The people, we people, don't always get it though. Because Jesus will return to this topic in the New Testament. He speaks to the Pharisees and the teachers. And, and you'll find it, I find it interesting. You'll, find, you'll have to note here that the people are giving 10% of, in some ways. But notice what Jesus says in Luke eleven forty two: Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You should have tithed, but the tithe is about justice and love and community. Jesus goes on in Luke eleven forty six. Jesus replied, and you, experts of the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The tithe is not a marker to aim for. And I hope you hear this as, as good news. God isn't going to love you more or less because of the amount you give. God loves you, period. The tithe, it becomes an expression of our identity, our, our, our response to God's invitation to be part of, of God's loving community in the world. The tithe, then, it says how we, how you trust God. Your, your tithe says how you see God at work through, through you and through the, through the areas of the world that you've been given to steward. Right? The, the tithe is an identity of how we worship God. Your tithe, your, your giving to the church, it's, it's the foundation of a caring community. Our, our tithe, our, our giving it, it distinguishes us as, as God's people. It, it shows the world that we are a people that don't want anybody left behind. It shows the world that, that we want the kind of community that God wants where everybody is loved and everybody is cared for and everybody has enough. So when we ask questions about the tithe, encourage us to think maybe we don't want to ask questions about statistics or markers but i think the bible invites us to ask questions about identity we can ask ourselves this does my generosity and giving identify my understanding that everything belongs to god does my generosity and giving show that i, I know it, it, it's not mine it, it all belongs to god or a second question, am I robbing God by contributing to a world that takes advantage of or, or hurts the most vulnerable of God's people? This question, does my giving, my generosity, identify my first priority as contributing to a more inclusive, Christ-like community? If I look at all that I have and, and and how I steward it is, is my first priority God and God's love spreading? And am I helping 
to equip God's people, the church, to be the foundation of caring community. I think of those words, make sure your brother has something to eat. If we think of them from God, make sure your brother and sister have something to eat. Most of us don't have farms or livestock today. We can't leave grapes or wheat or corn behind in our vineyards and fields. But, but the concept of, of tithing as creating a God-centered community where all are, are cared for, that's more relevant today than ever. And we're invited then to, to re-examine our generosity, to re-examine how we, we live with this question in mind, how are we committed to creating the kind of, of community right here in South Bend and Michiana and, and through the church across the world where people are cared for, where God's love is made known. We're invited by the Bible to ask, how are we sharing the produce of God's goodness, the blessings we have in a way that forms inclusive Christ life and caring community? And we're invited to ask, to imagine, what would the world look like? What will the world look like if we answer God's invitation to, to tithe, to create that kind of caring community? What would the world look like if we all did that together? Amen.